Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Anna Gresh, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special and warm welcome to everyone joining us here today in person and online this morning. Since 1870, UU Wausau has served as a vital force, voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are here. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram for updates. And with that, let us gather our hearts and our minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You'll find the words printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light the symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now let's stand for our first hymn, 159. This is my song. And it is in the blue um, music notes in your order of service. Oh, 
Please join me while you're still standing in the recitation of the church's affirmation. Words are printed in your order of service. Love is the doctrine of our church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve humanity and fellowship, to the end that all shoals shall grow in harmony with the divine. Thus do we covenant with each other. In our doxology. be seated. It's good to see so many of you on Memorial Day weekend. I always know Unitarians are very good at going up north, whatever that metaphor is supposed to mean. So thank you for being here at church this morning. It really is wonderful to see all of you. I um, literally forgot about a story for all ages this morning. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you what I read this morning in the newspaper and encourage you to take a look and then maybe bring you up to speed with the status of where we're at uh, with the church's um, uh, restoration, if you will. So one of the things that I want to lift up this morning is something I've been reading about since yesterday. They covered it in the Wall Street Journal, and then this morning they're covering it with a massive piece in the New York Times, and that is tomorrow will be the 100th anniversary of the massacre on Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I had never heard of the massacre of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma until I joined the Prairie Group, which is a secret society of Unitarian Universalist ministers. And we meet every fall on the banks of the Mississippi River in Pierre Marquette Park. And one of the other ministers who uh, attends the Prairie Group, his name's Marlon Lavener, and he's the senior minister at All Souls Unitarian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the largest Unitarian church in the United States. And Marlin, in one of his papers that he presented to the Prairie Group, wrote this in-depth analysis of the massacre. And if you all haven't ever heard of it, what happened was there was a young man and a young woman. The man was a young black man, about 19 years old, and there was a young woman, I think about 17 years old, and she was an elevator operator. No one really knows what happened between the two of them on that elevator. But what we do know that happened is afterwards, some confrontations happened. It started with a group of uh, World War I veterans who were black, and they wanted to protect this young man from the worst. And so a group of white men with guns came into Black Wall Street, and they made a confrontation, and these black World War I officers, they sort of stood around and blocked this man. Again, no one knows exactly what happened, but apparently a gunshot went off. And then the real tragedy happened. White people stormed into Black Wall Street, killing upwards of what they think are maybe 300 people. Today, they're buried in a mass grave, and universities are currently excavating the ground to find out just how many people were involved in this massacre. This is something our history books don't tell us. I didn't learn about it, and I consider myself a relatively well-informed person until I was 33, something like that, years old. I'd never seen it covered in a newspaper, and I've been a subscriber to the newspaper since I was 18 years old, and I could get it for free at my high school. So I encourage you to 
maybe on your way home to pick up the New York Times or yesterday's Wall Street Journal and read about this story. It tells two things in my mind. It says that we have a great nation, a nation we're celebrating today because of what? Sacrifice and dedication. But you see, you have to hold two things in tension whenever you're willing to celebrate great things. You have to acknowledge the bad things that have happened and the bad things we have tried to sweep under the rug. And so, do yourself a favor and educate yourself today. Now, on to an update of what's going on at the church. Uh, I think, really, the, the progress, as far as I'm concerned, is really remarkable. I mean, you can be in the church now. Um, uh, you can sit down pretty comfortably. The cleaning company still has to come in, and I'm going to look to Donica. She'll shake her head no if I'm getting this wrong. Uh, the, the cleaning company still has to come in and do sort of a one last sort of sweep of all the surfaces and wipe that down, and then they have to come in with these special vacuum uh, things that are, that are connected to like a, a van outside, <laughs> and they have to vacuum the floors. Uh, is that right, Donica? Okay. Um, and then we have to get some other odds and ends, you know, like get the internet up and running, but uh, all that is to say the progress has really been remarkable, and Pastor Rebecca of this church told me on her way to her own church's fellowship. She said, the church is yours as long as you want it. So, worst case scenario, we'll still be on this Methodist field trip um, next week if the church isn't clean by then. I guess we should sing the customary children's song anyways, right? Please join me in singing. to invite everyone, everyone into a spirit of prayer and meditation. As I say every week, I think prayer requires your whole body. And so take just a moment before we embark on this prayer to center yourself. I like to start praying by putting my feet firmly on the ground and pressing into it. I take a breath. I notice my heart. I think of someone I love, someone I miss, someone I'm worried about. And let us pray. Eternal hope, we give thanks for creation, for lilies and birds, for dark rolling clouds and pouring rain for cool nights and sunlit mornings. We give thanks for our bodies that can know the world. Oh God, we give thanks for love, for forgiveness and healing, for serving and leading, for dying and rising, for teaching and teachers who show us how to live. Spirit of life, we give thanks for joy and pleasure, for laughter and loving, for hope and commitment, for living amongst others. We pray this hour for leaders of nations, for those who are poor and hungry, for those who live in fear, for those who are desperate and addicted. 
We pray for our church community. We pray for the man who vandalized our sacred space that he may one day get the help and healing he deserves. Now let us call to mind all the joys and sorrows in our lives and let us meditate on them in silence together now. Amen. Our prayer hymn is filled with loving kindness and it's printed on the blue sheet. Please remain seated. mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. It's right outside the door. You can also stop by our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or a recurring gift with your credit or debit card. Thank you for your support.
Two last announcements came into my mind. Uh, this is customary. I saw Anne, which reminded me of one. Um, uh, Elnora uh, had, a, had a fall a couple of um, weeks ago. She's recuperating at Rennes. So anybody who wants to give her a call, she's got her cell phone on her. Uh, she despises that cell phone and has forbidden me from calling it, but I think that's the only way you can get a hold of her now. Um, or I guess you could write her a letter or stop by and see her, but I wanted to pass that on. And then next Saturday um, is the committal service with the 21-gun salute for Cliff Livingston, whose funeral I did back earlier in the year, and so his family is, is committing his, his cremains on Saturday at Merrill Memorial Park Cemetery in, in Merrill. So if you want more details about that, I'll, I, I'll be officiating that service, so I've got the details. You can just text me or send me an email, and I can let you know what time Cliff's um, uh, committal service starts uh, in Merrill. And now for our poem. Um, the poem is entitled, The Thing Is, by Ellen Bass. The thing is. The thing is to love life, to love it even when you have no stomach for it and everything you've held dear crumbles like burnt paper in your hands, your throat filled with the silt of it, when grief sits with you, its tropical heat thickening the air, heavy as water, more fit for gills than lungs. When grief weights you down like your own flesh, only more of it, an obesity of grief, you think. How can a body withstand this? Then you hold life like a face between your palms, a plain face, no charming smile, no violet eyes, and you say yes. I will take you. I will love you again. Therein ends our reading.
So I want you to imagine that it's the middle of the night and your phone rings. And so you startle awake before you have time to run over and answer it. But you don't get to it in time, and so you do what I would probably do. You just roll over and bury your head in the pillow, wondering who on earth would call at such an hour. And then the phone rings again. And so you pick up the phone, and a voice you don't quite recognize says, Get up! There's something I need you to do. Your life depends on it. And then the caller hangs up. You go, where am I supposed to go? And what's so important that my life depends on it? And so in the Old Testament, that's how the prophets are called. They're called out of the clear blue sky. God beckons from a whirlwind or a burning bush. And the call says, get up. You need to do a new thing. And that call is always unexpected. As it says in the book of Matthew, many are called but few are chosen. So in other words, everyone gets a call at some point, but few choose to walk into that unsettlement. Humans are made of mostly water, after all, which means that we, too, often and most often seek the path of least resistance. But being called to courage means that we resist easy things. And so this morning, I want to address two topics— The first topic is courage, and the second topic is being called. And so when I speak of courage, I don't mean courage in wartime or tragedy. As the writer Rod Dreher says, and I quote, everydayness is my problem. It's easy to think about what you would do in wartime, or if a hurricane blows through, or if you spent a month in Paris or if your guy wins the election, or if you won the lottery, or bought that thing that you really wanted. It's a lot more difficult, Dreyer says, to figure out how you're going to get through today without despair. What I think Rod's getting at is what I'm going to call everyday courage. The courage to face every day without going nuts, or giving in to sadness or despair. The courage to be true to your values, when the kids are breaking your heart, when the person you're worried about still hasn't returned your phone call, when your boss is driving you crazy, or when the only checkout line at Pick and Save is held up by someone who brought a trapper keeper filled with coupons. Everyday courage is a bit of a new concept for me. Maybe it's the pandemic or my conversations with some of you, or maybe it's the moment that we're living in that's nudged me to wonder. The only way I can describe the moment we're collectively living in is surreal. The pandemic in the United States thankfully continues to fade into the background, but we see news that elsewhere nations are struggling with COVID-19. But here in the U.S., air travel and rental cars and Airbnbs are booked clear through Labor Day, is what the news said Friday night. We're buying and we're selling houses like maniacs, literally. We're spending money like it's Christmas time, and I suppose that's to be expected. We spent the last 15 months at home on Zoom. We ventured out only for work and necessities, and so now we are ready to play. We are ready to spend our Trump bucks and our Biden bucks, and we are ready to have fun like it is March 2020. Prudence, of course, cautions us 
to slow down. Deadly flare-ups in countries show us that we still don't know how this virus saga will end. But as the wizard Gandalf says in The Lord of the Rings, and I quote, it is not our task to master all the tides of the world. There are no doubt other worries by this point that outweigh the concern for getting or spreading COVID, at least for the time being. And so with vaccines at work in our bodies, we venture back out into the world, eager to make up for all that lost time. So when my wife and I, whenever we started planning how this summer we would make up for last summer, I also started noticing articles about my generation, the millennial generation, all over the internet. And spoiler alert, the news is not good. I grew up reading about the greatest generation. Some of you are from that generation. I grew up reading about baby boomers. Some of you are here. I grew up um, reading about Gen Xers. There are some Gen Xers here. But the tide is changing as my generation gets older. In a recent article, Annie Lowry of The Atlantic says that the millennial generation is, and I quote, not just a generation delayed, but a generation for which the whole idea of milestone or a marker of adulthood has become weirder and less exact. And the pandemic, she notes, has only made things more tenuous and stratified, end quote. As I mentioned last week, millennials are now grandparents, which means, of course, simply, we're getting older. But that's not the bad news. Getting old isn't bad news. Here's the bad news. Unlike generations before, millennials on average, we don't own homes. We don't own cars. We don't have a dime in our savings like every single generation before has done by this point in their lives. Here's some real statistics. More than any other generations, millennials marry less, we have less children, we go to church less, and we move less. We came of age during not one, but two recessions. And now as we're entering our peak earning potential, we're in the midst of a pandemic, and our nation is on the brink of what some experts warn is, and I quote, a looming economic cataclysm. It's widely accepted at this point that millennials will be the first generation in American history to end up poorer than their parents. And all those millennials with well-paying jobs, they likely went to college on loan. And so they're spending most of their earnings on housing and debt. And all of these bad statistics that I just read, they only get worse whenever you factor in things like race and gender. And it's because of circumstances like these that's led many in my generation especially to say to heck with the so-called American dream. And so they're reprioritizing their lives and they're saying what? Goodbye to big cities. Hello to living in vans, which sends chills down my spine, but people are doing it. People are saying, people are moving back to their hometowns to be near friends and family as they try to make their way in a society increasingly difficult to make ends meet. I've heard parents, and some of them might even be here this morning, lament that their kids work hard but have little to show for it. But you see, everyday courage says that having something to show for it isn't necessarily all there is. And this is good advice anytime, but especially when an entire generation's economic forecast is grim. 
And we all know that what truly matters has less to do with the work we do than with the way we go about doing it. So in John Marquand's novel, The Point of No Return, there's this poor upstart, and his name is Charlie Gray, for those of you who may remember the novel. So Charlie struggles for year after year, and he is hyper-focused on getting the job of his dreams, a job he thinks that will provide him and his family with all of the safety and security he could dream of, and finally, his prayers are answered. He's made vice president of a fancy little New York City bank. But as one reviewer of the, no of the novel noted, and I'm going to quote, Marquand leaves you with the feeling that maybe the best way Charlie Gray could have supported his family would have been giving his life to the kind of work where he could have expressed himself and fulfilled himself in such a way as to become the kind of person they really need. Now I rush through that because I want to make this point. Note that last line, to become the kind of person they really need. In other words, what he should have been focusing on is everyday courage. He should have put his calling as a husband and a father first, rather than his pursuit of cash and prestige. Because that's what everyday courage is concerned with. It's concerned with life's true calling. Most often, being called is associated with what? It's associated with the work we do. And the little, it's very often not talked about in the ways that our souls are summoned. But being called is more than just what work we do. Just think for a moment about all the ways that you've been called in your life, the really meaningful ones. I'll tell you about one in my life. It's being a parent. Being called as a parent is a multifaceted call. So when the child is born, she called on my wife and I to feed us, or to feed her, and to comfort her. And then, as she got older, she called on us to help us make sense of the world. And then, as she keeps getting older, she's calling on us for a blessing, as she's going out in search of answers on her own. And then eventually, I expect that when my daughter is an adult, I'm going to call on her less as a child, and I'm going to call on her as a companion. And all those various callings barely scratch the surface of what it means to be called. And the same diversity of callings, it applies to our marriages and our friendships. It applies to the churches that we belong to, the work that we do, the work that we don't do. But we don't live during a time when matters of the soul are readily discussed, and I would argue that we are suffering for it. As the always wise Peggy Noonan wrote in her Wall Street Journal column this week, we are, and I quote, these are Peggy's words, we are a jangly culture that puts its emphasis on screens and how things look as opposed to thoughts and how things are. We get so wrapped up in the buzz and keeping up appearances that the world and its wonderments lose their power to address and startle us. I think there's danger in this. And the danger in this, as Fred Buechner writes, is that you will not listen to the voice that speaks to you through the seagull mounting the gray wind or the vision in the temple, that you do not listen to the voice inside you or the, to the voice that speaks. The harm in this is that you stop listening to the events of your life, but instead you listen to the great, blaring, boring, banal voice of our mass culture, 
mass culture that threatens to deafen us all by blasting forth that the only thing that really matters about your work is how much it will get you in the way of salary and status, and that if it is gladness you are after, you might as well save it for the weekends. End quote. So our spiritual ancestors passed down to us the callings of the prophets. What do all those prophets say? They tell us over and over again that we shouldn't store up our gladness for the weekend. And by all means, that tells us to ignore at all costs the great, blaring, boring, banal voices of mass culture. And so these are questions for you. What should you be listening for? I can't answer that for you. And nobody can answer that call or refuse that call but you. And nobody can know what you're called to do but you. But what I can say is that you should go where you are needed and you should be courageous as you do it. The author and the psychologist Melanie Greenberg says that there are six types of courage. The first type of courage she lists is the courage to face suffering with dignity and faith. As Viktor Frankl wrote, there is no need to be ashamed of tears, for tears bear witness that a woman or a man has the greatest of courage, which is the courage to suffer. We have to be brave enough to do the right thing, even if we know it might break our heart or tarnish our reputation. If you're ashamed of tears, how will you ever make amends? However, will you apologize? How will you keep going when you run into stumbling blocks? The second type of courage is to expand our horizons as we let go of the familiar. How many of us are stuck in a rut doing the same things we've always done for fear of failure or change? And so we hold on to what's always been, and all we're doing is we're shrinking life's horizon. And the third type of courage is to stand up for what's right to be brave enough to say what's true even when it exposes us to ridicule or worse. The fourth is the courage to keep going in the face of adversity, which should sound pretty darn familiar after 15 months of pandemic. And the fifth courage is to follow your heart, to be willing to risk comfort and ease for realness and authenticity. And the sixth kind of courage is that which keeps you brave enough to act even when you're filled with fear. If you remember the Wizard of Oz, this is what he said to Dorothy. There is no living thing that is not afraid when it faces danger. The true courage, he said, is facing danger when you are afraid. Everyday courage is going where we're most needed, even when it terrifies us. And so what makes you the gladdest? What makes you feel like you're headed in the right direction and living with peace? What is your true calling? Is it making things with your hands or with words? Is it making people laugh or cry in a way that cleanses their and your soul alike? Is it living with obituary values rather than resume values? What I believe is that if what you're doing fills you and others with gladness and with joy, then you are living your calling. If your living honors your pain and the pain of the world, you are living your calling. If you live in a way that honors your connection to others and life itself, you are living your calling. Our world is filled 
to the brim with pain and destruction and with war and grief. But our faith calls us to be a source of gladness and healing in this world. And so if you keep your heart open, if you keep your mind open, if you live with everyday courage, then one day or night when that phone rings, you won't hesitate. But instead, you will rush to find out where your life is calling you next. Amen. You're welcome to rise in body or spirit for our closing hymn, America the Beautiful, and I think it should be printed in, in the blue pages. Before I go, I want to thank our AV person, Donica, this morning, our song leader, Wendy, Margaret, our musician, Anna, our worship associate. Thank you all for coming. One last um, announcement. Next week is Flower Communion, the annual service and celebration of Norbert Chopik's liturgy that he wrote after World War II. So be sure to bring a flower with you, not a full floral arrangement. I guess if you want to, you can. But just a simple flower will do. If you don't know Judy Byers' address, just ask me after church. Maybe she's got some flowers in her yard you can pick on your way to church. Um, I, I saw U.S. Bank just put in their summer flowers. Go by U.S. Bank. Money's not an issue for them, too. 
So if you came with someone here this morning, you're welcome to take their hand as we do our benediction. May the truth that sets us free and the hope that never dies and the love that casts out fear lead us forward together until the day spring breaks and all shadows flee away. Please have a seat, enjoy the postlude, and I hope to see you as you make your way out this morning. Thank you.